0: Let's turn together in our Bibles to Gospel of John, chapter 7, John chapter 7. We're going to do something a little unusual this morning, we're going to read the whole chapter. John chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booths, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here, go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret, but he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast, because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, that he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if, as if in secret. So the Jews were seeing him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, He is a good man. Others were saying, No, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. But when it was now the midst of the Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him.
1: Did not Moses
0: give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath you circumcise a man. If a man receives a circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry at me, because I made the entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment." Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ comes, will he not perform more signs than those which this man has? He will not perform more signs than those which this man has believed. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you, and I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is the statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. But the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying... Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? None of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd which does not know the law is a curse. Nicodemus, who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Everyone went to his home. Let's pray. Our Holy Father in heaven, we ask you this morning to enable us to rise above, Lord, um, human ways of thinking. And to rise above just the human plane of things, Lord, and to see this morning your son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that you help us understand this marvelous chapter that we would grasp what is intended to be grasped here, and hear the words of Jesus. And Lord, that we see him in his peace. So help us, I pray, Lord, and please help me to communicate this morning your word, and Father, that you be glorified. I pray in Jesus' (coughs) name. Bill had already crossed... The midpoint of his life. His success with the opposite sex had not fared well, and his prospect of getting married was looking more grand every year. Not only had he gone totally bald, but he had never taken care of his weight, and he had never cared for personal hygiene. Moreover, his social, his social skills were as endearing as a frightened porcupine. After getting turned down for what seemed like the millionth time, Bill was determined to change. And so he began to work out, got his weight under control, he began to shower regularly and brush his teeth and wear clean clothes. He got an expensive ear transplant and he started to go to seminars on how to be more social and eventually Bill turned out to be a pretty charming guy. So after all this, finally Bill asks out another girl, and the girl says yes. And Bill is ecstatic. Things are going his way now. So then on the evening of the date, Bill, full of excitement, is skipping towards his car, ready to go pick up his date. And all of a sudden, kaboom! He gets struck by lightning. <laughs> and as he's laying there on the ground, dying, Bill looks up to God. He says, God, why? Why? After all this, after all that I've done, I've come so far. Why would this happen to me now at this time? And all of a sudden, God speaks out of heaven, Bill? Is that you? I didn't recognize you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing that God never gets confused about who we are. Amen? imagine. <laughs> Unfortunately, we do get confused about who he is, right? Now, I don't know if you noticed, but the seventh chapter of the Gospel of John is a chapter that is full of confusion. Did you notice that? Full of confusion regarding the identity of Jesus Christ. It is full of questions, full of debate, full of division. That's the main thing that we're supposed to take out of this chapter. This confusion that has arisen in Israel over Jesus. And there's another main thing that's supposed to be seen in this chapter is the resolution. How do we resolve this confusion? So everyone's confused. Who is he? He's this. He's that. And this chapter highlights that, but it shows us also how to resolve it. Now we shouldn't be surprised that this chapter highlights the confusion in Israel over Jesus when you consider the previous chapters that we've examined so far. This is fitting, isn't it? After all that Jesus has done, he's cleansed the temple, he's preached that a person must be born again, he's spent lots of time with the Samaritans, okay? he's healed on the Sabbath. All these things, if you think about it, are just totally out of the box. And not only that, to cap it all off, he's preached to the people that he is the bread of life, that came out of heaven, that a person must eat, in order to be, in order to have eternal life. So all of these things, they're confusing. And yes, he's performing wondrous miracles, and he's preaching not like the scribes, and so people are confused by him. He's got all this power, all this authority, and yet he's a very confusing man. He is not behaving how they think the Messiah should behave, right? I mean, if you ask a Jewish person in those days, what will the Messiah do? Do you think that he'll say, heal on the Sabbath, cleanse the temple, hang out with the Samaritans, who agrees that you got to eat? And yet, Jesus is, uh, who can deny his miraculous power, who can deny his majestic authority? And what makes the confusion about Jesus worse is not only that Jesus' words and his actions are confusing, or seem confusing, but that everyone in their dog has an opinion about Jesus. It seems. You see that in this chapter, and I, I say that that's continued for the last 2,000 years, and it hasn't abated at all. So even today, you'll have just a multitude of opinions about who Jesus is. So how do you sort through all that? So this morning, I don't plan on unpacking everything in this chapter. I think a lot of things in this chapter are straightforward, and so I don't need to unpack it. I'd like to just look at these main features of confusion and the resolution of confusion in this chapter. And so I'd like to divide this sermon into three sections. First of all, We're going to examine three points of confusion regarding the identity of Jesus in this text. Secondly, we're going to draw two crucial lessons from the text about how we should resolve the confusion or how we will resolve the question of Jesus' identity. Two lessons from the text and how to do that relevant for us today and for them at the time. And then lastly, I'll close with... One final point about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. So first of all, three points of confusion. Now, I'll let you go through this on your own, but if you read through the passage, there's actually at least ten places in the text where people are confused, and they're asking puzzled questions about Jesus, and they're fighting over some aspect regarding him. So there's at least ten places here. But I'd just like to highlight three. Just as a sample, these are three that I think are significant and relevant for the 21st century as well. Although, there's others that would be relevant to But I think the same confusion exists today. So, the first one I'd like us to notice is this, that there's confusion regarding Jesus' method of doing things that out of this passage. There's confusion about what he's doing. He doesn't do things the way that we would. He doesn't meet our expectations. Look with me at verse 1 and 2. So John writes at the beginning of this chapter that Jesus was walking in Galilee for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And he says in verse 2 that the Feast of Booths was near. The Feast of Booths is also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And in the last chapter, the feeding of the 5,000, and that incident, it says that the Passover was near. And now in this chapter, it says that the Feast of Tabernacles was near. So there's been about six months that have come between the last chapter and this chapter. So for about six months, Jesus is hanging out in Galilee. And John passes over that time. So, really, with the exception of chapter 6, John passes over all of Jesus' time in Galilee. John focuses pretty much exclusively on Jesus' time in Jerusalem, whereas the Synoptic Gospels focus on Jesus' time in Galilee. These six months that John passes over, a lot of it, uh, what's going on, is recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of three Jewish feasts that all males had to attend. It's prescribed and described in the Law of Moses. If you'd like to read about that, you can read about it um, in detail in Leviticus chapter 23. It was a feast of eight days in the month of Tishrei, which falls in September and October and fall. It was also known as the Feast of Inn Gathering because it was a celebration of the harvest that was. Completed. So all the, the harvest had been completed and brought in and they were celebrating God's goodness to Israel and providing that harvest and providing that food. But interestingly, God tells the Israelites that you're to dwell in shelters during these eight days. You're to make shelters for yourself. That's why I felt the Feast of booth or the Feast of Tabernacles or tents, because the Israelites have lived live in shelters. And you remember why they were to do that. Right? They were to God wanted them to do that so they would remember their time in the wilderness when they lived in booths like that and they lived in portable mobile tabernacles and shelters and so it's a celebration and a remembrance of God's provision for them in the wilderness that when we were in the wilderness for 40 years God was with us and God took care of us and then He brought us into the land and we have a wonderful harvest. Now we ate manna from the sky, we ate water out of the rock, we don't do that anymore because we live in the land now, and we have this bountiful harvest, so it's remembering all of God's care for them and his provision. It's a, it was a, one of the most joyful feasts uh, in Israel, when they would remember that God cares for them, he had, he cares for them in the past, He cares for them in the present, all this harvest, and he will continue to care for them in the future. Lots of people would be there. And his brothers now, Jesus' brothers, the other children of Mary, are questioning Jesus on his method. And they're saying, Jesus, why are you spending all of your time in the backwater place like Galilee? Galilee is not where it's happening, Jesus. You know, if you want to really be, uh, if you want to be the Messiah and you want to be known as the Messiah, then you need to go to where. The Messiah is supposed to be where things really happen. You gotta go to Judea, you gotta go to Jerusalem. And Jesus, he said, Tabernacles is a great time to do that. That's, their, that's what they're saying to him in verse 3 and 4. So Jesus' method did not make sense to them. If you're the Messiah, what are you doing? Stop being an itinerant preaching minister in Galilee. Stop moving around. Stop hiding from the public eye, but get into the public eye. Get the people behind you, do what the Messiah should you. Do what the Messiah is supposed to do, Jesus. they really understood, right? The problem is, is that they had an idea of what the Messiah should be doing, and Jesus just didn't get that idea. In verse 5, it says that they didn't believe in him. Now, I personally don't think that means that they didn't believe in him at all. They totally did believe he was the Messiah. I think that if that was the case, then this would be a striking example of impiety for brothers to say, we don't even believe you're the Messiah, but go make yourself to unable. That would be incredibly meaningful But I think what it means is they had a faith in Jesus that was like the faith of those crowds. They were impressed by him. They did think maybe he was the Messiah. But they didn't really understand him and believe in him as he truly is. In a way that they were supposed to believe
1: and Actually, I think
0: that says a lot about Jesus. His brothers believed that maybe he was the Messiah. Do you imagine? He must have been something to them, right? Yeah, we grew up with this guy completely. You think maybe he is the Messiah? That says a lot about Jesus. Today... What do you think? Do people also get confused about Jesus' method? Do people also today have ideas about what Jesus should be doing and what Jesus should be like? He doesn't meet those expectations. And so they're like, hey, what's up? What's going on? Here's an example. If, God, if Jesus is God's son with all authority in heaven and earth, and if Jesus really loves us, why does he allow certain horrible things to occur? Why does he continue to hide himself? Why doesn't Jesus come back now and put everything right? Why doesn't he manifest himself publicly to all? Kind of similar. Jesus said, you are the Son of God, why don't you come and make manifest yourself to all? And I think sometimes even as Christians, although as much as we we can also get into thinking like that, why doesn't Jesus do what I think he should doing? What we see in the text, the problem is their false idea and their false expectation, and Jesus tells them in verse 6, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportunity. Basically, God's timetable is not our timetable, and God has reasons that we may not understand for doing what he's doing. Working behind our accusation of God and Jesus when we say, why aren't you doing what Think you should be, is really an accusation that we know better than God. Jesus says, my time is not yet, now I believe what he's referring to here brothers and sisters is the time of his public manifestation and glory to the world, which I believe is the second coming. I don't believe he's referring here when he says my time to his hour of his crucifixion, but to the second coming, when he's going to be manifested and made known to all. And he's saying, I can't do that now. You want me to just come and be the Messiah you're looking for and deliver and, and make myself known and be glorified, and that's just not the time right now. That would bypass the, the purpose of my coming at this time, which is to die for sins and to settle that issue of sins first. Otherwise, if I were to do what you wanted me to do, if I were to come and be and rule and reign on the throne and manifest my glory as the Son of God, no one will be saved. You don't understand. You're you're asking me to do this because you don't understand the issue of sin. You don't understand the issue of unrighteousness. You don't understand your real need here. Anytime's good for you because you don't understand that. And it's the same today. Peter brings this up in 2 Peter when people are saying, how come God hasn't returned? How come Jesus hasn't showed up and ruled if he really is the king? Let him come and put things right. Come on. And and Peter reminds us that, first of all, God's timetable is not our timetable, right? And Peter reminds us that uh, God is not slow concerning his promises, but he's patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, it's because we don't appreciate and understand the issue of sin and righteousness and judgment that we act like this. We say, come on, Jesus, do your thing. God stop all the bad things in the world, do And we don't realize that would be the do. So he waits. <coughs> I do what my Father shows me to do, Jesus is saying. I operate on his timetable. I trust in his perfect wisdom and in his perfect wisdom. And brothers and sisters, this needs to be our attitude when we find ourselves confused about why Jesus or God don't do the things that we think they should. So that's one point of confusion in the text. Here's a second point. There's confusion regarding the reality of the opposition towards Jesus. They're confused about the reality of the truth of the opposition towards Jesus. Look at verse 20. The crowd answered Jesus when he said, "Why are you seeking to kill me?" Now a whole bunch of people in the crowd apparently didn't think anyone was trying to kill Jesus. You have a demon. In fact, this in the text is the strongest, uh, you know, negative thing that anyone says about Jesus. You have a demon, and it was because he said you're seeking to kill me. Who seeks to kill you? This is a central. Refrain in the teaching of Jesus, isn't it? True. That the world will hate me, or do, excuse me, the world does hate me, the world will kill me, the world will persecute me, and therefore they're going to persecute you too, if you follow. That's one of Jesus's, uh, central refrain in Jesus's message, how the world hates him. And you need to carry your cross. Because they're going to crucify him and you need to realize that to follow him means to bring upon yourself the hatred of the world. That's a major teaching, but many people then did not understand when Jesus said that. In fact, they thought he was crazy when, they, when he said that. What do you mean? Who's trying to kill you? And I think it's the same today. There's many people who hear that in the Bible or from Christians. And sometimes those Christians will say, the world hates us, right? The world persecutes us, and lots of people are like this, it's what do you mean? We're all tolerant, right? We don't hate you, we don't want to kill you, we don't want to persecute you. They're, they're feeling that way. But what we see in the text is that the crowd who are thinking that way, no one's trying to kill you, Jesus. They're confused, but they're actually naive. They're totally naive. Because the truth is, is that people did want to kill him. We see that in verse 1? Jesus wasn't in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And look at verse 25 and 26. Some of the people, these are more astute people now, of Jerusalem are saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that he is Christ, do they? So there's other people in the crowd that know that Jesus has got a target on him, and they're actually confused. Why he isn't being arrested? So there's confusion once again because the people who are confused are not seen rightly. They have a false idea, a false reality in their mind, which Jesus did not have. He had no false. He was under no false delusions. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it. That its deeds are evil. So here we see that the teaching of Jesus, one of the main features of it, and that's something you can see throughout his teaching and carried on in the apostles as well. Now, when he says the world's deeds are evil, he does not mean just
1: the good people are evil as well. So most people in the world know that there's some evil people, right? Hitler's evil. Serial killers are evil. No one's going to disagree about that. Those people deserve to burn in hell. That's what people think. But Jesus testifies here, the controversial point of his teaching is that the whole world is evil. You see there's lots of religious teachers in this world that say some people are evil. But Jesus is controversial cuz he says the world all of them are evil, and that includes you and me. Right? Let's just hear Jesus again. You're evil. And your deeds are evil. And that's true of me too. That's Jesus attacking the world's sacred cow, right? Because the world's sacred cow is there's good people, there's bad people, and I'm one of the good people. And Jesus is attacking that. Brothers and sisters, so long as the world doesn't realize that is what Jesus is doing, then they don't hate him. You know, if they have this impression of Jesus, That's other than that. Oh, Jesus is just, you know, in the same vein as other religious teachers. He says, there's some bad and some good, and everyone's a little bad, and everyone's a little good, and, you know, we can overcome our badness by being good and following the rules. A lot of people think that's what Jesus was doing, right? And as long as they think that, they think, who's trying to kill you, right? But we see an interesting thing in the next chapter, chapter 8, this same crowd When Jesus says to them, you're of your father, the devil, then they say, you do have a demon, (laughs) right? (laughs) That's what they say in the next chapter and they pick up stones to stone him. They have said, we were right in saying you had a demon and they wanted to kill him because right then they realized what he was really saying. Hey, you're not really the Jesus we thought you were. You're crazy, So we see that ignorance of Jesus causes confusion regarding the reality of the opposition against him. And then there's another thing that causes confusion about this same reality, and that is that that opposition is not always evident because of impediments or obstacles that keep that opposition from being made known. That's that's what we see in verse 26 the, the leaders of Israel wanted to kill Jesus, but they weren't. And it was causing confusion. Why, the, why aren't they killing him? They want to. Do they think he's the Christ? And I think we can be fooled in our in our society today because we may not see persecution. We may not see killings and hostility and hatred and things like that so so evidently, right, as maybe we would see it in another place. And so we might get confused and think, well, Jesus says they want to kill him, but maybe they don't really want to kill him, right? Maybe it's really not that serious. After all, their opposition to him. But, brothers and sisters, we must not be fooled by appearances either. We may not feel persecuted. I think there's two reasons why we may not feel persecuted. One, I think as Christians, we're not always very clear about what it is we believe and profess and proclaim, right? That's one of the. Oh, you Christians are just do-gooders and that's fine. I'm not one of them. But, but I think if we Christians were more clear in what we are saying and standing for and we're testifying the world is evil, we'd see persecution more vocally if we were more vocal. And then on, and then on the other side, uh, why we may not see persecution so much is because we live in a country where that's impeded by laws and things. If we were in another country or if we wound the clock back to another time, we would see even more clearly the truthfulness of what Jesus is saying. So that's a second point of confusion in this text. Here's a third point. There's confusion regarding the ordinariness or the familiarity of Jesus. Look at verse 27. They're confused about him. How can he be the Christ when we've basically known him? Since he was born, you know. However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he's from. We see in this verse a a common way of thinking in Jesus' day that when the Messiah comes, he'll come suddenly, he'll come out of the blue, his coming will be mysterious. And everyone will know when he comes that he is the Messiah. But Jesus grew up with us. We've known him for a long time. And it's not undeniably obvious that he's the Messiah, at least in their thinking. Look, we're debating about him. We're saying, is he the Messiah? Is he not? He's the son of Joseph and Mary. When the Messiah comes, it's not going to be like that. He's too ordinary. He's too familiar. makes me think of Matthew 24. Actually, We Christians believe something similar about the second coming, don't we? In Matthew 24, Jesus says when people are arguing, come over here and see the Messiah or he's there. Don't believe him. Because when the Messiah comes, it'll be like lightning from one end of heaven to the other. There's not going to be any question whether I'm here or not. I will have come and everyone will know. It'll be sudden. It'll be dramatic. It'll be extraordinary. You don't need someone to tell you that I've come. So we do believe that regarding his second coming. And the Jews believed, or some Jews believed something like that regarding his first coming. But these people were not thinking truly if they were considering the prophets. But they were offended by the familiarity of Jesus. He's ordinary. How can he therefore be the Messiah? I think today people are confused by a similar feeling towards Jesus. You Christians say Jesus is God. You Christians say Jesus is the one who has um, brought salvation. You Christians say Jesus has changed everything. Jesus is God who's changed everything. He's it, And you're, ha- you're having to tell me about this, you know? Don't you think everybody would have known if that was true? God is in this man. You're telling me God is in some man, carpenter, blue-collar guy in Israel who was crucified? Known only by word of mouth, passing along his story and history. What? So Jesus seems too plain, too ordinary, too familiar. Not extraordinary enough. We sing in one of our songs here at church, as blood ran down the nails and wood, history was split in two. That's what we're professing. Everything changed when Jesus died. The Son of God God in the flesh, but we're having to tell you this and to people that said, I didn't feel like history really changed. So there's confusion there about his ordinariness, the hiddenness of his nature. And Jesus says in verse 28 in the temple, you both know me and know where I am come. I think most commentators see Jesus... Yeah, I admit it. You know that I grew up around you. You know that I'm from Nazareth. You've seen me for a long time. But do you really know who I am? He's challenging them. Yeah, you know where I'm from. You saw me grow up. But do you really know where I'm from? Do you really know who I am? Do you really know my Father? And and he says here, I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. You don't know where I'm really from, because you don't know my Father. And Jesus is giving a summons and a call for them to look deeper through the ordinary to the extraordinary thing about him, through the familiar to the unfamiliar. And we need to do the same today. We need to challenge people. You've got to look a little bit deeper, and you've got to examine Jesus and see his true origin And how do we discern his true origin? Well, this brings me to the second section in my sermon, which is two crucial lessons on how to resolve the question of Jesus' identity. How to break through this confusion. Because as I've said, this this chapter is not just showing us that there was confusion, but Jesus gives us resolution here in this chapter. He tells us how to resolve the question. When we are faced with confusion regarding who Jesus is, there are two things that this text advises us to do. Number one, the text tells us to give Jesus a proper hearing. Look with me at verse 51. Now Here's Nicodemus speaking. Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him, and knows what he is doing, does it? So according to the law of Moses, you have to try somebody before you judge them, before you condemn them. You have to try them. How many of you would like to be tried and not just condemned if there's some confusion about you, right? We all appreciate how our law works. If there's confusion about something you're doing or saying, you want people to investigate. Now how many people investigate Jesus these days? There's confusion about him, there's opinions about him, there's... Very important uh, debates about him, but very few people actually investigate and examine and hear really what is Jesus saying, what is Jesus doing, right? The establishment here in the context has already condemned Jesus beforehand when they do finally put him on trial. It's just a formality. It's a mockery, right? They already, they already hate him. They already condemn him. And so some people today will kind of give a mockery investigation of Jesus. Yeah, I looked into it, but their minds were made up from the beginning. But the establishment in their haste to condemn Jesus, they erred, didn't they? And there's actually kind of some humor here because when the officers come back not having arrested Jesus and they say, why didn't you arrest him? They, they, they challenge the officers, you have not been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? And right there is Nicodemus, right? One of their own number, who's like, um, you know, he didn't come out and say I believe in him, but he's like, you know, we should probably investigate first. So in their haste, in their sinful haste, they err. The sad reality is that so many people reject Jesus before they actually know who they're even rejecting. They haven't heard him out. So how do we work through confusion about Jesus? Well, don't hastily judge him. Don't hastily go and listen or go with all that the media has to say about Jesus. That would be a disaster, wouldn't it? or all that the internet has to say about Jesus, or all that the current intelligentsia has to say about Jesus, be sure that you've given him a proper hearing so that you know what he is really saying and doing before you make a judgment. Simple. Get the facts right about Jesus. You'll notice throughout this chapter, there's lots of false information being spread about Jesus. We've already seen in verse 20, who's trying to kill you? Well, they were trying to kill him. Or in verse 27, When the Messiah comes, no one's going to know where he's from. That's actually not true, according to the prophets. And look at verse 52. The, The establishment, the leaders, they say, search the scriptures and see no prophet arises out of Galilee. So they're saying Jesus can't be the Messiah because he's from Galilee. Well, they've got their information wrong about him, don't they? Verse 41 and 42. This is the Christ that people are saying. Still others are saying, Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Yes, that is what the scriptures say. Right? But get your facts right. They're saying he can't be the Messiah. He wasn't from Bethlehem. Well, they were wrong. So here's the first crucial lesson. Give Jesus a proper hearing when there's confusion about him. He actually did meet all the prophetic requirements. And once again, we see again in this chapter, it was the people's ignorance that was the problem, not the facts. And now we come to really the most important point of this chapter. We've highlighted that there's confusion. We've highlighted that we need to give him a hearing. And in this, in this point now, Jesus himself gives us the key to resolving all confusion about him. Jesus gives us the key, how we can answer the question of his identity. This is a beautiful key. And I hope that we can all walk away this morning understanding it. The key to the resolution of the confusion is this, that Jesus' own teaching is self-authenticating. Jesus' own teaching is self-authenticating. Do you know what self-authenticating means? It means you don't need to bring in other evidence. It, on its own, by its own nature, is proof of its own truthfulness. You don't need to bring in other evidences. And here's what Jesus says. According to Jesus... Here's how you know. Now look at verse 14. Jesus is teaching in the temple and the Jews were astonished. How has this man become learned having never been educated? Verse 16. Jesus tells us about where he gets his teaching from and how he is teaching what he is teaching. My teaching is not mine but his who sent me. And he says this If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. So, first of all, he says what the prophets all say, right? My teaching is not mine, but him who says me. All the prophets of the past would have said that same thing. My teaching is not mine. I'm just passing along what God has said. However, While that's true of all the prophets, Jesus never once said, Thus saith the Lord. Did you ever notice that? All the prophets would have said, My teachings, not my own, but God's. But all the prophets said, Thus saith the Lord. I'm passing on his information. Jesus, however, never said, Thus saith the Lord. He said something, he meant something here much more than what the prophets meant. He meant that I come from God. And as we know, I come from eternal intimacy with God. I come from his bosom. I come with intimate knowledge of the Father, a knowledge that no other person, not even a prophet, really has. And I'm speaking from that place of matchless authority and revelation. So no wonder, in verse 46, the officers, when they come to arrest him, say, They they return empty-handed, they say, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Not John the Baptist, not Isaiah, not you Pharisees. There's something totally unique about this man in not only the content of what he or the the manner in which he's saying it, but also the content. Both the manner and the content are different. The expositor G. Campbell Morgan comments on verse forty-six, We were sent to arrest him but he arrested us. And F.F. Perus comments on verse 46, their testimony has stood the test of 19 centuries. Anyone who carefully listens to what Jesus is saying knows that Jesus' teaching is not only learned, as these guys are saying, he's learned. He's not some ignoramus. We know that but it's also matchless. Anyone who's really looked at Jesus' teaching will see it's matchless. He came from the Father uniquely, and his teaching is not his own, but it's the Father's who sent him. And verse 17, he makes this extraordinary claim, and he claims this is the test of how you know my teaching is from God. This is the way of knowing This is how you cut through all the confusion. If anyone wants to do God's will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. In other words, here's what Jesus says, and don't miss this. What I am teaching is so self-evidently, unmistakably, unambiguously of God that if anyone is truly wanting to do God's will, he will know that what I'm saying is of God. And if someone doesn't realize that what I'm saying is from God, the reason is is because he doesn't want to do God's will. It's an extraordinary claim, brothers and sisters. He's putting the, the, the blame upon those not wanting to do God's will. He's saying, my teaching is so clearly from God unmistakably the problem is not with me the problem is with you if you don't see this this is an amazing claim the proof of what i'm saying is in the pudding the key to knowing is in the self-authenticating nature of my teaching and how is that now well in verse 18 he explains he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. In other words, Jesus is saying, here's how you know my teachings from God. My doctrine gives the glory to God and not to man. Therefore, it's true and right. Or in other words, my doctrine is true because it gives God God the glory and not man. And everyone knows this is right. If you love truth, if you want to be in harmony with God and therefore the truth, you'll know that my teaching is right because it gives glory to God. Now why is that the case? Because we know the truth, don't we? The truth is, you and me, we are sinners, right? How many of you know you're sinners? I was thinking the other day, and I was thinking, Eli, are you a good good neighbor? I thought, no. (laughs) Are you a good husband? No. Are you a good father? No. Are you a good creature? Do you give God the glory? No. You know, I just, I knew it, that I was, I fail, you know, I fall short in what I should be. How many of you know that's true of you? You're a sinner. How many of you know, like me, that your heart is just a cesspool of despicable sin? Do you know that? (laughs) I just know that, you know, I'm, I'm an evil man. I do evil things, I think evil things, I don't do the good that I know I should do. I don't deserve glory and honor. Right? That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 2 when God judges the world, he'll give honor and glory and immortality to those who do good. But to those who don't do good, shame and indignation and wrath, right? And I believe we all know that we don't deserve that glory because we are wicked and we don't do the good that we should do. We all are guilty. And that's what Jesus' doctrine is. Jesus comes along and says, the world is evil, deserves indignation and wrath, not glory, wrath. And God, the one and only living God, the more you understand him and know him, the more beautiful and pure and holy God is. You realize he is. And you realize he deserves all the glory. Right? He's the one who deserves all the honor and all the praise. He's the one who deserves all that. Not me. Not this world, but him. And brothers and sisters, only the doctrine of Christ gives God all the glory and takes it away from man. Only the doctrine of Christ does that. Right? And this is Jesus' teaching. Throughout his ministry, God is perfect. He requires, because he's holy and perfect, Perfect righteousness. This is clearly stated in the law of Moses that God gave. He requires perfection. He made that perfectly clear. And it's perfectly clear in your conscience as well. You know you're not good. You know you don't deserve glory because you're not perfect. You're not what you should be. And he taught that all of us are unrighteous. He continually challenged people's righteousness. You think you're good, you're not. You think you're clean, you're not. You think you're worthy, you're not continually did that. He exposes in this in this very chapter the hypocrisy of the of the Jews in verse 21 and 24 because they're getting on Jesus's case. They want to persecute him for healing someone on the Sabbath and he's saying, "Look, you're just inconsistent, you're hypocritical. You think you're law-keeping, you think you're honoring the law by challenging me. But look, don't you yourself circumcise someone on the Sabbath? That's not a break in the law, and you're getting on my case because I healed someone on the Sabbath. You know, the problem here is that you just hate me because I'm testifying that you're evil. And he says in verse 24, don't judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Get your judgment in line with truth. What does he say in verse 19? Didn't Moses, this is all rhetorical, didn't Moses give you the law and none of you keep it? Right? He expects them to say true. They don't say true, but he expects them to say true, right? None of you keep the law. So he exposes them here. And we see in Jesus' teaching, furthermore, that no one can be righteous by obedience to the law. And here's how we see this most clearly. Because no one can be righteous by keeping the law, because that's not the way you're going to receive honor and immortality Because that can't be the way you're going to be saved since you're evil. Because that way doesn't work, I came into the world so that whoever believes in me will not perish. Every time Jesus says, believe in me and you'll have eternal life, he's announcing that you can't be righteous any other way. Every time. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. In other words, you can't have eternal life any other way because you're evil and unrighteous and you cannot be righteous through what you do. And so he taught not only how unrighteous we are, but how gracious and amazing God is in sending his son to give his life, to lay down his life for the salvation of the world. Look at verse 30. They were seeking to seize him and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. One of the reasons why they couldn't get him and kill him at that time, because it wasn't yet the time for that to happen. But make no mistake, there was an hour when they would seize him and when they would kill him. They asked in this, some of the crowd asked Jesus, who is seeking to kill you? They're naive, they're ignorant. The reality is the world is seeking to kill me. But the marvel is, is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son into their wicked hands so that he could die for their, their sins. And save them. It's truly amazing and profound. They're seeking to kill him and he's seeking to save them. At the appointed time of the Father, Christ would lay down his life for us and our sins were laid upon him and he paid the penalty that you and I deserve. You know, it's amazing. God doesn't want us to be ashamed on judgment day. You know, I want to remind you that God doesn't want you to be ashamed on Judgment Day. He doesn't want you to be filled with shame and God's indignation to fall upon you, even though that's what you clearly deserve and I clearly deserve. And the proof that God doesn't want that for you is that he sent his son to take all that shame and that indignation and that wrath on your behalf so that you can be free and not have to, to deal with that yourself. To set you free and to give you eternal life, that's what he did for you and for me. So this is how we know Jesus' teaching is of God. It's self-authenticating because it's simply the truth. We are evil and God is worthy. All of that truth is concentrated in the cross, isn't it? The cross itself embodies that truth that Jesus is teaching. Our unrighteousness and the matchless beauty of God's love and grace for us and his worthiness is right there seen in the cross, so that we can even go on and say not only is Jesus teaching self-authenticating, brothers and sisters, but the cross of Jesus Christ, when rightly understood, is self-authenticating as well. That is, when you know what's going on on the cross, when you realize the meaning and the interpretation of it, you know it's true. You don't need any external evidences. Not that there aren't other evidences we can look to, but your conscience your heart, you know deep down, when you understand the meaning of the cross, that's really from God. That's not from, the man, from man, you know? That's not from the earth. That's not the wisdom of man. That's the power and the wisdom and the glory of God right there. And I know it's from him and not from myself. I know it's, it's not some made-up fable. That is from God. It's self-authenticating. And if anyone wants to do his will, he'll know that. God wants us to walk in the truth. To confess our sin and to believe in his gift. And in closing this morning, we see here how Jesus fulfills the Feast of Tabernacles. And look with me at verse 37. This is after Jesus has predicted his death and his resurrection and his ascension to the Pharisees when he says, I'm going to be with you a little bit longer. I'll be present. You'll be able to see me and know where I am. But there's coming a time where I will not be present and you won't know where I am. I think there's, a, there's an echo of the resurrection and the ascension there. You're not even going to know where my body is. And you'll look for me. And I think what he means is you're going to be looking for the Messiah and you won't find him. And in another chapter in the Gospel of John, he says, you'll look for me and you will die in your sins because you don't believe that I am He." So after predicting his death and his his resurrection and his ascension, Jesus, it says here, on the last and the great day of the feast, did something extraordinary. You remember how I shared that the Feast of Tabernacles was a joyous celebration of God's care and his provision for Israel. And they're living in these booths, right? They're remembering when, you know, when we were in the wilderness for 40 years, God provided for us. And now we're in the land and we got all this food. God's providing for us. And, we, and the Feast of Tabernacles look forward to the future of God's provision as well. And by Jesus' day, there was this centuries-old tradition that's attested um, in history, in the records, in the Talmud, That on each day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the priests would bring water to the altar and they'd pour the water out upon the altar. And by pouring the water out each day, while they're all living in shelters and booths, it was to remember and symbolize the water from the rock. That God provided Israel with water from the rock when they needed that. They needed that to quench their thirst. But it also symbolized in the Jewish mind the promise of the Spirit that would be poured out like water in the future according to the prophets. So basically this Feast of Tabernacles is saying God provided our need in the past with this beautiful water from the rock. God provides our need now and the prophets say he's going to provide our blessing and our need in the future by pouring out his spirit. They did this every day. Marcus Dodds, the commentator, writes this. But deeper souls must have viewed with some misgiving all this ritual feeling still in themselves a thirst, which none of these symbolic forms quenched, and wondering when the vision of Ezekiel would be realized and a river broad and deep would issue from the Lord's house, filled with these misgivings, they suddenly heard a voice, clear and assured. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Jesus picked his timing right, right at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. He cries out, If you're thirsty, come to me. I will provide you with the living waters that will make you never thirst again. Just remembering God's provision of the water from the rock doesn't satisfy. Just remembering how God takes care of us now with food doesn't satisfy. But the Jews were looking forward to something more and Jesus is saying, I'm here and I'm providing that that, that something more that final blessing and provision that God promised he would give. And brothers and sisters and friends, Jesus provides this for us through his death. And it's through his death that Jesus shows us all God's ultimate care for us and God's ultimate provision for us in taking away any sense of lack when you rightly understand what Jesus has done for you and you believe in him you understand you are forgiven, you have righteousness, you have hope, you have God, you no longer have a sense of lack when you remember what he has done for you. United to him in faith, we have an endless supply, don't we, of hope, of peace, and of forgiveness, and of righteousness. God is not confused about us but many are confused about him. May we as the church who know the Lord boldly proclaim Jesus Christ, who he is, how he cares, what he's done, regardless if the world hates us or not. Let us proclaim him. Let us not be confused about him. Let us proclaim the truth that all the glory goes to God. None of the glory goes to man. We are unrighteous. He is the Savior and he is worthy. Please stand with me as we pray. Lord, we marvel at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ that proclaims loud and clear how wretched we are and how beautiful you are all in that one place. Lord, I pray for those who are not Christians, who have not put their faith in Jesus. Lord, that you would help them to reflect upon their sinfulness and to see that judgment day is coming. Lord, that they would that they would desire to do your will, to walk in the truth and to be in harmony with truth. And that they would see in the cross that they would see in the cross the truth of God. Lord, encourage us all, I pray, and help us to rejoice in the living waters that you have given to us. Thank you for providing for us. Help us never to forget, Lord. You're so beautiful and good, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.